Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its landmark decision in Roe versus Wade, which addressed the legal issue of whether a woman had a right to have an abortion. In that decision, the court concluded that the right of every pregnant woman to choose an abortion was implicit in the 14th Amendment due process right to privacy. In that decision, the court ruled that a woman had an absolute right to make this decision during the first trimester. During the second trimester, the state was allowed to regulate this decision in the interest of the health and welfare of the woman but could not restrict it. And during the third trimester, the state could enact regulations which protected the viable fetus. The Roe versus Wade decision arose from a Texas statute which prevented abortions in that state. Contrary to popular opinion, abortions have not always been prohibited and heavily regulated in this country. The efforts by states to prohibit abortion did not begin until the late 19th century. But by 1880, these prohibitions and restrictions were widely enacted. Restrictions on abortions created a medical contradiction where abortions in practice were available and widely obtained by women with the financial ability to pay for them, while poor people who sought to terminate an unwanted pregnancy were relegated to the dangerous back alley market. Since 1973, conservative, religious, and political forces have engaged in a robust campaign to defy and overturn Roe. Regularly, these attempts have been mostly rejected by the court, but serious restrictions have survived judicial review. This year, the Texas legislature enacted a new and different attack on Roe when it outlawed abortions after six weeks of pregnancy and allowed private individuals to sue medical personnel who provided abortion services. An effort to enjoin the implementation of the law fell at the U.S. Supreme Court, and this very restrictive law took effect just this week. So what is the future of abortion laws in the U.S.? That is the question which we will address tonight. At the conclusion of this discussion, we hope that your understanding of this issue and related matters will be enhanced. Joining us to discuss this topic are Attorney Susanna Birdsong, the Director of Public Affairs for the North Carolina Planned Parenthood Association, and Professor Don Corbett, a constitutional law professor at the NCCU School of Law. So first of all, we want to thank both of you for agreeing to take time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join with us in our Zoom studio for this discussion. It's good to be with you. 
Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Well, let me just start this conversation off with uh, uh, with with Ms. Bursall. Can you talk to us about the work of the uh, Planned Parenthood Association in uh, in North Carolina and the kind of things that uh, the association does uh, with respect to uh, uh, the woman's right to choose? Yes, um, thank you for that question. And you know, Planned Parenthood has been operating in North Carolina for um, many decades now, and um, we provide essential health care in nine health centers across the state. And so we have health centers everywhere from Asheville to Wilmington and several places in between. Um, and those health centers provide all types of health care, including in six of them, abortion care. And we also have, um, you know, part of our organization and the part of our organization that I work for that does a lot more sort of public education and um, government affairs work to make sure that the healthcare that happens in our clinics is able to continue happening and to be expanded where we can. Um, and so I work primarily. I serve as our lobbyist in the General Assembly, and I work um, with executive agencies. And I also, during the election season, uh, work to support our endorsed candidates um, to protect and expand access to reproductive health care, including abortion. And so that's just sort of how the two arms of Planned Parenthood work together, our 501c3 health centers and our 501c4 political arm. Um, which is really the political and advocacy arm to protect and expand the healthcare that happens in our clinic. Professor Corbett, let me just ask you if you could kind of describe uh, the constitutional basis on the uh, Roe versus Wade uh, decision and uh, how that decision uh, has been uh, narrowed uh, over the years since this, uh, uh, it, it has been issued. Sure. Thank you again for the invitation, Professor Joyner. I think that you covered a lot of it in your introductory material. The long story short, the court has said that the Constitution's due process clause uh, protects certain privacy rights of citizens, even if those rights are not explicitly mentioned in the text of the Constitution. It's called substantive due process rights. So it's your ability to choose who you want to marry, uh, your right to procreate, et cetera. So when Roe comes down in 1973, the court voted to extend those substantive due process rights to a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. Now, subsequently, there was another case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which came along about 20 years later. And that kind of it, it, it affirmed many of Roe's basic uh, guideposts, but it also uh, expanded on, uh, on the state of abortion law. <clears throat> in that particular decision. So they combined, those two decisions have really combined to create our current state of the law. And that essentially is that a state can't prohibit a woman from having an abortion prior to the point of fetal viability. Now, because government has an interest in regulating uh, in this particular circumstance, they have the ability to pass abortion legislation during that same period, as long as that legislation does not pose what's called an undue burden to a woman's right. 
So, for instance, if a state wanted to pass a law requiring that the procedure be performed by a licensed doctor, then that would be permissible because that's not an undue burden to our ability to have the procedure done. But what's happened is many states have pushed the line of, of regulating in this point with, the, I think, the big picture goal of trying to regulate it out of existence. So, so it's come up before the court a couple of different times and, and it's due to come up before the court again uh, in this particular term, given uh, a case out of Mississippi. I don't know exactly when the court is gonna hear it, but at that point, uh, they will have to revisit Roe and we'll see if Roe is narrowed further, uh, if it's upheld or if it's completely overturned. Now, what, what do you mean by fetus viability and, and, and the importance of that in the analysis? Oh, Lord, I was hoping you would not ask me a science question. I'm going to do the best I can. All right. So, so from what I understand, when we talk about viability, and I'll ask Attorney Birdsong to jump in here if I start freestyling too much, but what we're talking about really is the fetus's ability to live outside of the womb. So we're essentially, and where, Professor Jordan, we're talking about in terms of the number of weeks is kind of up for debate. The thought is it's usually at least 20 weeks, uh, somewhere in that 20 to 24 week mark. So it used to be, as you mentioned earlier, in the Roe case, they, reg they decided to regulate it or essentially create a trimester framework where the state's ability to regulate became more, uh, came broader as a woman got further along in the pregnancy. But now the point uh, that's the, the flashpoint is kind of that of what is fetal viability. So one of the issues that I believe is going to be up for debate when this Mississippi law comes before the court is, does that fetal viability line change or do we keep it at the roughly 2022 mark where it is now, or 2022 week mark where it is right now? A plus, Professor Corbett. Um, yeah, viability is, I think, um, varies depending on the pregnancy. Um, but, you know, an estimate is between 22 and 24 weeks. And um, again, that's, we, you know, I always talk about viability as sort of an individualized determination um, that needs to be made on the basis of each pregnancy. Um, and I would just add a couple of additional cases to the cases that Professor Corbett mentioned um, that have been decided recently that really like uh, set the parameters of what we mean when we say undue burdens. Planned Parenthood versus Casey said um, that, that a state can't place undue burdens in the path of a person seeking an abortion pre-viability. And then they didn't say what that meant. And so from you know the early 90s when that case was decided, until 2016, when the court decided a case called Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, state went wild and enacted a lot of really onerous restrictions um, and said, well, you know, we're still allowing access to abortion care. These don't constitute undue burdens. We're just here to protect women's health and safety. And what the court in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt said was if a state is going to enact a restriction on access to abortion pre-viability, so pre-22 to 24 weeks-ish of pregnancy, they need to have a reason that is actually grounded in health and safety. And they can't just put a veneer and say that and enact a law that restricts access. And so the, it, we're, always, we're always going back to Texas. Roe was about a Texas law. Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt was about a Texas law. 
that basically said that clinics had to have um, admitting privileges at nearby hospitals and enacted a lot of other onerous, what we call targeted regulations of abortion providers um, restrictions. And the court said all of those restrictions are unconstitutional because the state hasn't shown that they actually do anything except burden a woman's access to health care. They don't actually protect health and safety. There is no there is no line or tie between her health, her safety, and those restrictions. And so they struck them down in that case. And they upheld that good law in a case just last term, um, June Medical Services uh, versus McGee, where the state of Louisiana basically enacted the exact same scheme that Texas had tried to enact um, before. And the court just reiterated, we meant what we said in Whole Woman's Health, and if a state is going to enact regulations or laws that burden access, they need to have a really good reason for doing so that actually protects health and safety. Of course, the composition of the court has changed um, since just last term. And so, you know, we are all uh, watching um, very closely what, what the court decides in this Mississippi case that's coming up. And then, of course, this um, SB8 decision or non-decision, whatever you want to call it, um, was made last week, which I think tells us exactly what we need to know about what the court may do next. Uh, let me just ask you, what is the state of the law in North Carolina? Uh, before we go to Texas, I know we need to get uh, to this uh, Texas uh, uh, scenario, but what, what is the state of law uh, here in, uh, in this state? Yeah, in North Carolina, um, abortion is legal up to the point of viability, and that is courtesy of a, um, a court challenge that we brought along with some of our partners in 2016 to the state. The state at that time had a 20-week ban, um, saying that except in very narrow sort of medical emergency situations, abortion was banned after the 20th week of pregnancy. And that is of course a pre-viability abortion ban. Um, and so we challenged that law in federal court in 2016 and um, the fourth circuit just earlier this summer um, confirmed the district court's decision um, and the district court struck that law down um, as an unconstitutional pre-viability abortion ban under Roe um, up to the point at, it said, you know, uh, the legislature needs to further define what it wants the law to look like. And so the court just said up until the point of viability, um, abortions um, are legal in North Carolina. And so that is not to say that there aren't myriad other restrictions that have been enacted in our state, especially if we think about the last decade. Um, there have been numerous onerous restrictions enacted by the General Assembly. Those include, right now we have the longest, um, we are one of a handful of states that has the longest waiting period um, on the books before someone can access an abortion. And so we require a 72 hour mandatory delay. So somebody calls, makes an abortion appointment, is told that they have to go through this state mandated informed consent process, um, which is not, sort of the informed consent process that we go through with our patients um, anyway. It is state mandated scripting. Um, 
And so someone has to go through that script on the phone with a counselor, wait 72 hours, and then come in for their procedure. It is abortion is the only type of healthcare where we require that type of uh, state mandated waiting. Um, and um, we also have many laws on the books that further restrict access, things that say, you know, and Professor Corbett mentioned this earlier, things that say only doctors can provide abortions, even though we know that that's not medically indicated or necessary, especially in earlier stages of pregnancy. We have a ban on telemedicine and abortion care, which over the you know last 18 months during a pandemic has, has been, um, you know, made plain how onerous that can be for people who just need to be able to get a prescription and take a pill. We require them to come into the clinic um, and be seen by a doctor and the doctor has to watch them take that pill in person in the clinic, um, which is unnecessary um, and not medically indicated. And we have a bunch of those trap restrictions, those targeted regulations of abortion providers on our books as well, which mandate that our clinics have to meet certain standards that again, aren't medically indicated are necessary. They're just meant to make the process of providing abortion in a clinic setting um, more complicated and um, harder to do. So I'll stop there in terms of kind of what's on the books in North Carolina, but I would say the difference between North Carolina and Texas is that North Carolina has really created a series of hurdles but if someone can jump over the hurdles that are, you know, getting pretty high, if someone can jump over the hurdles, they can still secure access to abortion care, um, you know, into the second trimester of pregnancy. And starting in Texas as of last week, that is not the case. Yeah, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we're talking about uh, reproductive rights and the protection of the woman's right to, uh, to choose. We have uh, two experts uh, in this uh, area, uh, attorney Susanna Birdsong, who is the Director of Public Affairs for the uh, Planned Parenthood Association of North Carolina, and Professor Donald Corbett, who is the Constitutional Law Professor at NCCU School of Law. We're gonna continue this discussion, want you to, uh, to stay with us, and uh, we'll be right back. Good evening, my name is Hannah Gaines and I'm a current senior at North Carolina Central University and this is your Community Event Spotlight. The event that we are highlighting is the Black Farmers Market. This event is going on now and doesn't end until December 12th. It's from 1.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Golden Belt. This is a great opportunity to not only get local products, but also an amazing way to support Black-owned businesses. You can learn more about this event by visiting www.durhamcommunityengagement.org events. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue this uh, discussion about uh, reproductive rights and the uh, 
protections of the woman's right to to choose. let me just start back with uh, Professor Corbett. Uh, it, it, can, can you kind of describe to us uh, exactly what the uh, Texas law uh, is all about and what it is that is allowed and what it is that is uh, restricted uh, by that law? I will, I will do my best. Uh, Texas, you know, we, we talked uh, in the last segment about fetal viability being the critical point in terms of how the court has defined these rights with regard to both Roe and Casey. From what I understand about the Texas law, it prohibits abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. It's usually around the sixth week of pregnancy, which is why I think you keep hearing people talk about it's a six-week law. Uh, The law makes no exceptions for rape or incest. Uh, from what I understand. And it's unique in that generally these laws are enforced by state officials and state agencies. And when they are, it allows for a procedural vehicle called the pre-enforcement kind of uh, uh, tactic, which allows parties to seek an injunction from the court before a law is actually enforced. And the court can assess its constitutionality before anyone is negatively impacted. So you can enjoin an individual from enforcing a law that you think is unconstitutional. So what makes the Texas law a lot different is that it allows literally any private citizen to sue anyone who performs an abortion uh, after that six-week mark. I believe that anyone who is deemed to be uh, an aider or an abetter in the process of a woman getting an abortion also can be sued. Uh, The statute says that you get at least $10,000 for a successful lawsuit, and uh, there's no financial penalty for filing a frivolous suit. Uh, So, you know, in the the rest of the real world, you know, if you file a lawsuit that is deemed to be frivolous or non-meritorious, sometimes you can be sanctioned by the court, and the attorney fees for your uh, opponent can be paid by that party. It does not allow, the Texas law does not allow for that. So it essentially deputizes private citizens literally anywhere to be able to, uh, to, to sue under this particular law. So because there's no state officials who are in charge of enforcing the law, it means that the only way to challenge it is to wait until someone actually gets sued under the law. And then the defendant can challenge the constitutionality of it. So the problem is that you shouldn't have to violate the law if it's so clearly violating what is an existing constitutional right. And, and that I think is, I don't want to go too much further without, you know, without uh, inquiry or further inquiry, but that's, I think the nuts and the bolts of the law. So this law is incredibly unique. Um, Attorney Birdsong, are you familiar with any other state law or federal law for that fact that has this particular type of enforcement mechanism and why was it that the Texas legislature decided to craft the law in this particular way? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I am not familiar with any other law that um, uses this type of enforcement mechanism um, that basically creates, uh, allows for vigilante justice and creates really, I would call them bounty hunters. Like you are saying that any individual doesn't have to be somebody who lives in the state of Texas, doesn't have to be somebody who 
is directly harmed or implicated by somebody else having an abortion um, can bring someone to court. And uh, if it's found that that person aided or abetted, which is also undefined in the law. So does that mean like the Uber driver who took them to the clinic? Does that mean their pastor who counseled them on their decision? Um, who aided or abetted them can be sued and that person can claim $10,000, um, the person who brings the lawsuit. And so I don't know of any other law in recent history, um, that, that feels like that, 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 that sets up a scheme like that. And I think the Texas legislature did it this way because they saw, they really wanted to enact a six-week ban. You know, six weeks of pregnancy is also at a time when most people don't know that they're pregnant yet. And so this is a very early, almost full abortion ban. Um, and I think that they looked around the country and saw that other states had enacted six-week bans and those had been uniformly struck down as unconstitutional um, under Roe v. Wade precedent. And they said, but we really, really want a six-week ban on our books. And so how can we do that? And they tried this scheme, which basically takes the government actor out of it and stymies sort of court enforcement in the traditional way that Professor Corbett just mentioned. And, um, you know, obviously the Supreme Court, uh, at least five of them in their decision last week also said, we don't really know what to do with this. And so they just allowed it to go into effect because it didn't meet the sort of confines of what they were used to in terms of the six. We're going to get into the Supreme Court's response to this, but the six-week ban, as you mentioned, what it, the end result of it is that it's pretty much a total ban. Can you talk about why those first, you know, couple of weeks or, you know, if we're talking about pre-viability, again, as you two both talked about, uh, 20, 21, 22 weeks, we're talking about um, the current structure of abortion laws allowing for pre-viability abortions. This is prohibiting abortions after six weeks. And so we're talking about a significant number of weeks where women in Texas aren't able to exercise their constitutional rights. Can you talk about the significance of not having the weeks, you know, seven through 22 and, and how women go about making the decisions and, and also when they even discover when they might, you know, be pregnant uh, and then the decision-making process and why six weeks just is not enough time to give women, um, adequate opportunity to make this very important, oftentimes life-changing decision? Yeah. Um, I mean, people who aren't trying to get pregnant, and even those who are, often don't know that they are pregnant until right around the six-week mark because, you know, cycles are different or off for any number of reasons. You didn't buy enough home pregnancy tests, so you're late taking yours. If you're you know, trying to get pregnant, and that's something that you're monitoring. If you're not trying to get pregnant, you're not monitoring it, and you don't notice that your period is late until it's like, I don't know, a week or more late. And at that point, you could be already six weeks pregnant, because when you go in, your first missed period marks the four weeks of pregnancy mark. 
And so we're only talking about two additional weeks that somebody has after their first missed period, um, which is a really short amount of time. And, you know, people get people decide to have abortions for all different reasons. Somebody could get a positive pregnancy test when they're five and a half weeks pregnant and know exactly what they want to do in that moment and schedule their abortion appointment and take a, a pill um, and then take another pill and it's done. And somebody else, you know, doesn't know right away what they want to do. They want to talk to their um, doctor. They want to talk to their family. Um, they might not have the resources and they need time to, you know, gather resources. Uh, the majority of women who decide to have abortions already have children. And so it may take time to secure childcare um, to be able to go in for a, a medical appointment. Um, and then other people, you know, with wanted pregnancies don't receive um, you know, the first genetic testing until right around the 10 to 12 week mark. Um, and so they could receive information at that first genetic screen that tells them that, um, you know, the decision that they make at that point is to have an abortion because they receive devastating diagnosis. And so there are all sorts of reasons that people decide to have abortions. And that decision for a lot of people is not something that can be made in the instant that they receive a positive pregnancy test at five or six weeks of pregnancy. Yeah. So, Go ahead. So, Professor Corbett, um, you and Attorney Birdsong did a great job of kind of laying out the current state of you know, constitutional rights as it relates to abortions. And we've been talking about this pre-viability. Clearly, a six-week ban violates current constitutional law as it relates to abortion. Can you talk a little bit about procedurally, and you got into this a little bit, but for um, for folks who are hearing about this Texas law, it seems unfathomable that there could be a law that's currently on the books that is um, preventing women from being able to exercise their constitutional rights and the Supreme Court refusing to step in and striking the law down. So procedurally, why is it that the court chose not to, or at least a, a majority of the justices, chose not to address this particular law at this time? Well, uh, the, the short and truthful answer is, I don't know. Uh, the, the longer answer is a little bit more layered. And, and part of, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to explain just a little bit about how the court would even be involved in the first place at this particular, you know, we, we know that generally what happens is before the court can hear a case, it's already gone through several stages of litigation. Uh, but what happens is sometimes people will file emergency petitions with the court and each judge handles a different region of the country and they can either reject the petitions or they can take them to the full court. And, and, and this has become a tactic that has been criticized much more heavily lately because the uh, people are terming it a shadow docket, which means basically the court is making decisions with substantive impact without really fully hearing the matter and rendering decisions under its traditional process. So this becomes a tool that can really, really impact public policy without going through the typical procedure the court uses to assess legal questions, if that makes sense, right? So, so they did that with, uh, they've done it with immigration enforcement, they've done it with public health orders, 
And most recently, they've now done it with this abortion law from Texas. So uh, initially, what they did was when the uh, folk in Texas filed this emergency petition, uh, they just let it lapse. Like uh, they, they filed the petition the day before it was supposed to go in, the law was supposed to go into effect. And the court never spoke to it and just let it lapse. And that meant that the law went into effect. So they were criticized for that. So the next day, they came out and basically said, and these are your five you know, more conservative justices. They said, well, there's, there's procedural hurdles that are going on here to sort out at the lower court level. And we think that we should let Texas sort that stuff out. And then you know, we're not going to get involved until they actually do that. Uh, so for instance, uh, as Attorney Birdsong mentioned a little while ago, you have instances now where private citizens are carrying out the law instead of state officials. So if you wanted to sue, for instance, a state judge to keep them from enforcing the law, well, you'd have to answer the question of whether there's a doctrine called sovereign immunity that usually prevents judges from being civilly liable. So is that is that something that's that that is a piece of this particular process or not? So those are the kind of things I think the court is pointing to. Uh, now, no one asked me, but I thought it was crazy for them to let this pass, especially with the court already scheduled to hear a case out of Mississippi that bans abortion after 15 weeks. Uh, so I thought the easiest thing to do is say, hey, we're just going to put all these laws on pause until we get an opportunity to hear the arguments. And then we'll make a decision about what to do with Roe from that point that will affect everybody. But their failure to block the Texas law and issue an opinion, again, now means essentially that Roe v. Wade is still good law, right? But it means that women in Texas don't have access to that right because of the Texas law. So it's a really odd and peculiar set of circumstances that the court has kind of brought upon itself in many ways. But you know, that appears to be where we are, at least today. Well, wouldn't it have been a wiser choice uh, for the providers in Texas to uh, file an action in the uh, District Court of Texas, uh, raising uh, that claim and putting the, uh, the the district court there in a position that that, that they could have made a, a decision with respect to the uh, uh, to the injunction. Now, I believe Professor Joyner, and, and I'll defer to uh, Attorney Birdsong here, but I believe that that at least one entity already has done that. Uh, I, I want to say it was uh, Planned Parenthood of Texas that got an injunction against an organization called Texas Right to Life through the very process that you just mentioned. But the thing you have to remember about this law, again, is that anybody can bring it. So that means that the next time it gets sued, you know, maybe that judge decides to hear the case. So it's, so it's a Band-Aid and a very small Band-Aid at that on top of what is a huge problem. So even though you do have this, this one entity that's already gone through that process, it still doesn't address uh, the big picture problems that are caused by the law. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we're talking this hour about reproductive rights in the state of a woman's right to choose. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, attorney Susanna Birdsong. She is the Director of Public Affairs for the North Carolina Planned Parenthood Association and Professor Don Corbett, Constitutional Law Professor at NCCU School of Law. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L, 
at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Susanna Birdsong, who is the Director of Public Affairs for the North Carolina Planned Parenthood Association, and Professor Don Corbett, Constitutional Law Professor at NCCU School of Law. And we've been talking this hour about the state of reproductive rights here in not only North Carolina, but also nationally. We've been talking about the most recent Texas law, which bans abortions after the six weeks, notwithstanding the fact that uh, the current state of uh, a woman's right to choose extends up to certainly uh, viability. So Attorney Birdsong, a question that I know many of us have is what would need to happen in order for the Supreme Court to address this issue about the constitutionality of this Texas law. So procedurally, because the state would not be enforcing the law, but but private individuals would be, the Supreme Court is basically saying, um, procedurally, it is not appropriate for the Supreme Court to address the constitutionality of the state because of this state law because the state would not be enforcing it, private individuals would be. So what would need to happen in order for the Supreme Court to say, okay, now uh, the, the procedural posture of this case is such that we can rule on the constitutionality of it? Yeah, I think a couple of different things could happen. And I will say just first, like in my alternate reality scenario, what I think they should have done is to say like, uh, this procedure is complicated and in some ways unprecedented, and we should pause this law and not allow it to go into effect until we figure out exactly what is happening here, because what they've allowed to happen is a thwarting of their precedent and of their, you know, I would say of their credibility in some ways too. Um, and so I think for a case to ultimately make its way to the Supreme Court for them to hear this case sort of on the merits, because they kept saying in their um, in their sort of explanation of why they allowed this law to go into effect, why they didn't block it um, uh, or uh, issue an injunction, um, was that you know they weren't they weren't deciding anything about the constitutionality of the law. They weren't saying anything about Roe versus Wade. They just it was not procedurally appropriate um, for them to decide that. And so I guess a couple of different ways that that could reach them ultimately is, um, you know, and I think the first way is 
what was already happening. There had been a lawsuit filed in federal court, in federal district court in Texas, um, suing all the sort of state actors that um, we could think of that would be on the hook for enforcing this law ultimately. So state court judges, county clerks, um, and folks like that. And that case is still, you know, sort of making, winding its way through. Um, the Fifth Circuit canceled um, canceled an appeal on that case from the district court on the on the sort of temporary restraining order preliminary injunction question. But I anticipate that to come up, um, I don't know, hopefully in the coming weeks um, and could potentially, you know, make its way to the Supreme Court that way. There are also cases being filed um, in state court now and, you know, like Planned Parenthood, a Planned Parenthood affiliate in Texas um, just a few days ago um, filed a lawsuit to block enforcement um, as to Texas Right to Life, which is an organization that had set up a sort of tip line for these anonymous tips to come in. Um, and so a case could make its way up from state court, although that would have to go through the state court system first and presumably take longer. I think, you know, at bottom, the result of this is that this law has been allowed to take effect and it is going to be uh, quite some time before a resolution at the Supreme Court level happens. And in the meantime, women in Texas are without recourse when it comes to access to abortion after a point in pregnancy when many of them haven't even realized they're pregnant yet. Well, why, why can't a, a, a woman who is uh, pregnant and is desirous of an abortion uh, in Texas file, can't file a claim in court uh, to, uh, uh, to test the uh, constitutionality and to uh, enjoin uh, the enforcement of the action pursuant to Roe versus Wade? I don't know, Professor Corbett, if you want to, um, if you have thoughts on that too. I think, so the law doesn't, um, uh, pregnant people in Texas aren't, um, can't be held liable under the law, but their constitutional rights are certainly implicated by the law. And so at this point, um, I think any and all options are, are and should be on the table yeah. challenging this pernicious law. Yeah, I would I'm sorry. I, I was just I was I was only gonna say I, I concur. I think one of the things that several students have asked me about is well, why are they suing pregnant women? And and that's not really accurate. They're the the women who are pregnant can't be sued under the law. Now there's nothing I think necessarily that prevents them from attempting to go to court and maybe getting some kind of declaratory judgment about the law itself, but because they are not the targets per se of the law, I think it's much more complicated than it ordinarily might be under the circumstances. That mean it wouldn't happen. I think we're kind of in the wild, wild west here, literally about, you know, how this is going to unfold. But but I do think that creates an obstacle that wouldn't ordinarily be there. Uh, well, under the law as written, would, would, would the lawyers who would uh, counsel with a woman to uh, pursue uh, that right in court not violate the law as an aider and a better? Uh, in uh, promoting uh, the uh, woman's right uh, to an abortion? Well, I think Attorney Birdsong spoke to this earlier, but I don't think they ever define what an aider or an abetter is. So that 
falls within the purview of whatever the imagination is of the judge who's, who's hearing the case, you know, but I think if you were going to go broad with aider and a better, you could say anybody this person talked to could potentially be an aider and a better in this particular circumstance. I think the law is written purposely broad for that reason. And I think one way to accelerate review would be if you did have a woman who was able to secure an abortion after that six week mark. And, and then you had someone who exercised their, you know, private action, um, that would accelerate it. But what that would require is that abortion providers specifically violate the law. And, and therein lies the problem that we have here. So abortion providers have to decide whether they follow this law or they don't. And if they follow the law, then, then a woman is not able to fully exercise her constitutional rights. Um, Attorney Birdsong, can you talk about the, the reason why abortion providers may choose to, even though they recognize that this law is, is completely problematic, why they would choose nevertheless to follow the law as it currently exists in Texas? Yeah, I mean, they are, and as far as we, I mean, I can speak for Planned Parenthood, but as far as we know about all the other abortion providers in the state of Texas to date, they are complying with the law because the consequences of not doing so are um, can be um, disastrous, both for um, you know the service provider entities, but also for individual providers. They can be sued. One person who's going to sue them for one ten thousand dollar claim. It's any number that that. <laughs> The limit does not exist on the number of people who can bring a claim against a physician for a procedure that they perform. Um, and, you know, the there is no sort of limit to how much they can be sued for. And I think that um, that is not a viable option for providers in the state of Texas. And at least in this sort of, you know, a week after the law has taken effect, this sort of period that we find ourselves in, um, getting women who need abortion care who are in Texas right now out of Texas is, you know, sort of the easier path to getting them the care that they need. Um, and I think that's where folks are are, are sort of concentrating their efforts. Um, and we will see what happens down the line if this law stays on the books and stays in effect um, in the weeks and months to come. Which raises a question, like what, what does the future hold? Um, it doesn't look particularly bright, at least in the short term as it relates to Texas. But what can we, is there anything that we should conclude from the Supreme Court's refusal to uh, consider this law and, and block the law. Um, you both, Attorney Birdsong and Professor Corbett, noted that the justices in the majority specifically said they weren't deciding the merits of the law. They weren't making a statement with respect to Roe v. Wade. But can we glean something from how the Supreme Court has decided to handle this particular case? Well, ordinarily, I would say no because the court can surprise us on occasion, right? But I also think that given 
I don't want to go, I don't want to delve too deeply into the politics here, but this has been a four decade battle uh, among conservatives in our country. Uh, the under the uh, to the dismantling of the Roe v. Wade case, and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Coney Barrett, all of whom were elevated to the court during the Trump administration, all handpicked by the Federalist Society, all which is a which is a uh, conservative uh, organization, a lawyer for or is an is an organization that <clears throat> that breeds conservative lawyers. Basically, I can't think of a more artful way to say it, but. In any event, this has been a long, long-term goal uh, of that particular entity and of you know, roughly 35 to 45% of the country. So I think the temptation for them to either completely overturn Roe or to give the, the states now such broad latitude to regulate it that Roe doesn't, doesn't have any functionality to it, I just think that's going to be a really, really difficult thing to ask those judges to walk away from. And now, since there are five of them, there's no need to to worry about what Chief Justice Roberts would do. You know, he was kind of the the turn vote in there. He actually voted with uh, the majority to uh, to uphold the laws of Louisiana that that Attorney Birdsong referenced. But now you've got five people on on the right of him, and it doesn't matter as much what he does. So I would say that I have a very difficult time uh, seeing Roe and Casey still remaining intact after this Mississippi decision. The question just is, what does it look like after it's over? Is it completely gone or just somewhat gone or completely gone? (laughs) I don't think there's going to be anything less than something happening. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And I think, um, you know, even before last week and this Texas decision and um, and before the Supreme Court took the Mississippi case, we were already experiencing this patchwork of what real access to reproductive health care and access to abortion looked like, depending on your zip code, um, depending on which state you lived in and depending on you know, which town you lived in in that state to some extent. And I think what it looks like to access an abortion in North Carolina looks very different than what it looks like to access an abortion, even in Virginia, where they have um, enacted laws in recent uh, legislative sessions to repeal some of the abortion restrictions that have been on the books there um, and repeal their mandatory delay, their waiting period and things like that. And so I think that in the short term, we will probably see even more of that. States really emboldened by what the Supreme Court indicated in in this decision last week, in this non-decision, and and going from there, moving to enact really um, restrictive laws limiting access to abortion. Yeah, one of the things that Irv mentioned in his intro was, um, you know, those that are able to exercise their constitutional reproductive rights oftentimes comes down to means and and resources and and access. And this rolling back of um, ability for one to exercise, for a woman to exercise her constitutional right is having a disproportionate effect on certain groups over the other. And so even if we look at Texas as an example, 
Um, Attorney Birdsong, you mentioned that efforts are being made to figure out how women who may be in need of these services are able to um, be transported out of Texas so that they can get those medical services. Uh, But it raises a question as um, the ability to seek and obtain an abortion is limited. Will that really um, limit abortions or just expose women to unsafe healthcare practices. Can you talk a little bit about the danger to women's health, particularly those women who may not have the means, who come from a particular community, um, how it will affect their health in, in a way that, that people may not oftentimes be um, familiar with? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, when we think about the notion of forced pregnancy and childbirth, it is um, horrific to think about what it means um, to force someone's body, to force someone's psyche to go through something that they don't want to experience. And it not only is emotionally traumatizing for them, but can be physically traumatizing, especially in certain parts of the country where we know, like when I think about Black maternal mortality rates. Um, in a state like Texas, which is, you know, higher than in most other places in the country. And this is a law that will have a disproportionate impact on women of color in Texas, Um, especially when you think about, you know, having the ability to travel out of state, um, securing the necessary resources, having the ability to go and make you know, and have an abortion prior to that six week mark, um, this is going to disproportionately impact um, women of color, women in rural areas of the state, um, poor women. And, you know, those negative consequences aren't just for their ability to impact, to access an abortion, it is what it means for them to carry a pregnancy to term and what it means for them to um, experience childbirth. And then, you know, looking at sort of the downstream consequences even further at the infant mortality rates. And, you know, thinking about a state like Texas that drastically restricts access to abortion is also a state that refuses to expand Medicaid. Um, And so providing resources for women in their pregnancies, providing resources for babies after they are born, um, all of this, you know, is sort of ironically awfully linked. So one of the, the concerns during the 70s, um, before the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade, was women um, being taken advantage of by, you know, medical professionals. Um, and we talk about kind of the back alley abortions and, and the thought that um, abortions will cease or, or be as limited as the law provides ignores that there are people who will be preying on women who find themselves in a very desperate situation. Um, so I just wanted to, to mention that as well. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but we, I, I think we're gonna have to bring the two of you back, um, particularly when we see what the Supreme Court does with the Mississippi case. This is a, a vitally important issue that impacts our community. Um, it impacts women, uh, families, and we have to make sure that that we continue to address um, and hold our our legislators and our um, Supreme Court justices, our our judges accountable for 
the current state of a woman's right to choose. So we're going to have to end it there, but we want to thank our guest, attorney Susanna Birdsong, Director of Public Affairs for the North Carolina Planned Parenthood Association, and Professor Don Corbett, Constitutional Law Professor at NCCU School of Law. And of course, we'd like to thank you for taking time out of your Sunday evening to listen to the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.